be nice about this is that for once we won't have to talk about Elon Musk or Kanye. Like I'm gonna keep it a buck fifty with you. If we have to talk about Kanye or Elon Musk in another episode, I'm gonna shoot myself. Remote in the deserts of Araby lies the nameless city, crumbling and inarticulate, its low walls nearly hidden by the sands of uncounted ages. It must have been thus before the first stones of Memphis were laid, and while the bricks of Babylon were yet unbaked. There is no legend so old as to give it a name, or to recall that it was ever alive, but it is told of in whispers around campfires, and muttered about by ground doms in the tents of sheiks, so that all the tribes shun it without wholly knowing why. It was of this place that Abdul Al-Hazri, the mad poet, dreamed on the night before he sang his unexplainable couplet. That is not dead which can eternal lie, and with strange aeons, even death may die. I do not recall distinctly when it began, but it was months ago. There certainly is a strange kind of streak in the Innsmouth folk today. I don't know how to explain it. But it sort of makes you crawl. He had not left the manuscript all night, but sat at his table under the electric lights, turning page after page with shaking hand. Of course it was a dream. All the specialists have told him so. And he has nothing to prove the contrary. This is CMN. Welcome, everyone. I am Shugoth Madness Kennedy, and this is Chaos Magic News, the only podcast beyond the wall of sleep. Joining me is my Eldritchian co-host, Randolph the Red-Nosed Carter. How you doing, Randolph? I have peered beyond the, the walls of time and space. I have seen the horrors that lie at the end of the universe. I'm doing pretty good. Good. It's uh it's great to see you by the way. You have no idea how great it is. If you can't tell, which you can't because this is a podcast. We're in the same room today and there's a reason for that. Yep, yep. We're doing uh we're doing a special special something for you listeners. It's a special Christmas episode and it's super special because it will probably be up after Christmas or on Christmas. So don't worry about what we said about being a Christmas special, especially because it's not actually relevant to Christmas in the slightest. Yeah, this is definitely not something. Unless you're a big fan of those um, Christmas Lovecraft songs like I am. (laughs) They're, yeah, they're, you know, I saw mommy kissing Yogg-Sothoth, hilarious stuff. But yeah, this really, this won't have anything to do with Christmas, really. I mean, I, I couldn't think of any way we could parlay this into a Christmas episode. But the fact is, is that, It's probably going to come out after Christmas, and most of you are going to be listening to it after Christmas, so you're going to be tired of Christmas. You're going to be like, Christmas, throw that shit in the trash. It's a Christmas episode because Christmas is also fake. (laughs) Well, it's, as you already know, because you can read an episode title, this is the Lovecraft special. Yep. uh, We were talking about this months ago, honestly. This started off... I think we had the idea by the third episode. 
yeah, yeah, I think we did too. We were we were making memes and we had some weird synchronicities that popped up and mostly it just was like, hey, do you want to talk about do you want to talk about Lovecraft? Yeah. So, who is the man of the hour? Who is Howard Philip Lovecraft for those of you who somehow don't know who Lovecraft is? Howard Philip Lovecraft was born August 20th, 1890 in Providence, Rhode Island. He had a relatively affluent family. He was notably a sickly child. Some some have made the case that perhaps he suffered from more of a psychosomatic and possibly a a, a the sickness of a lonely child who just wasn't born in the right place. Which is weird because um, Providence would definitely be like, you know, like New England is like his, um, his, uh, well, like him and Stephen King do the same thing. Like all their stories, except for with the notable exception of a handful of them. Right, right. Take place in that kind of area. Uh, almost like Alan Moore too, where he, he, he mystified the world that he was in, the place that he was. Right. All of his stories take place in and around Rhode Island and New England in general. Um, and then in the strangest way, he brings the otherworldliness of his writing into those, these places where he's writing about these cosmic entities, these sort of horrors from beyond the veil, and he's putting them right in his own backyard. But he got his start mostly writing in weird tales and pulp magazines and stuff like that. And he, he wrote maybe something like three novels in his life. Mostly wrote short stories. Yeah. Most of Lovecraft's work was serialized things that appeared in magazines, which was the style at the time, which was the style at the time. (laughs) And most of his work tends to have a lot of air of, even an older kind of fiction in a way than the time he was writing in because he was really writing in the era where science fiction was really starting to take off in the magazine format as well. And Lovecraft gets classified as science fiction in, by certain people, but for the most part, his, his work is, I don't even want to say magic realism, but it kind of is in a way. It was definitely magic realism before we had a word for it. And it's magic realism in a way that magic realism isn't thought of today because the emphasis for Lovecraft was not, of course, magic. It was the inconceivable, unrecognizable horrors. Anytime magic appears in Lovecraft's work, it's almost universally the shadowy workings of cultist and mad alchemist and such. Yeah. Bizarre practitioners and madmen and shadowy alchemist on the fringe. It's never presented as like, this is a good idea. It's, it's almost exclusively like it's almost exclusively the, the thing that leads a character into insanity and ruin. It never works out. Right. And oftentimes it's not just that a a lot of the times when it's 
not expressly magic. It's horrible things happening to people that weren't really looking for them. Or no, if they I were, would I would argue that it's it's very Oedipus, where it's it's people paying the price for searching. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of what drew people to actually view Lovecraft as someone that was interested or presenting ideas of actual occultism, which is kind of interesting in the fact that like, if you, if you genuinely thought Lovecraft had something to tell you about magic, it would, it should be that you shouldn't fuck with magic, right? Yeah. Fuck around and find out is definitely the, the MO. Yeah. I suppose we could get it more into him as a person where largely he wasn't able to support himself. Um, he, he sort of just wrote for most of his life. And at a certain point he hung it up and pretty much by the time he said, I'm done with writing pretty soon after he just kicked the bucket. Yeah. Yeah. He never really got the acclaim he deserved in life. And he never really felt that he was that good either. That's a very Franz Kafka. Yeah. And of course, he's now buried in Providence in Rhode Island with a nice little headstone that says, I am Providence. And he was right. Yeah, he damn sure is. It's one of those things that from now on, uh, Providence, Rhode Island will be associated with Lovecraftian horror. You come from Rhode Island, and little old Rhode Island is famous for you. And the fact that we even have a word for it now, that there are hundreds and hundreds of writers now that will, you can look up the genre of Lovecraftian horror, and you'll find them. And he he developed a large circle of friends and people that it, continued working on his not just his style of fiction but what would become the greater cthulhu mythos or the lovecraft mythos and that would also mark the great turning point in his writing because before then he he wrote a little bit he wrote you know the eric zahn and the forgive me the story i forget the name of but we all know it it's the one where there's a curse on the family and it turns out that it's because the guy who said, I'm going to curse you found a way to keep himself alive for hundreds of years. And he just kept sneaking into the houses and killing people. Yep. And his name's like evil magician in French or something. Yeah. I am. I am evil de saucier. <laughs> so I wanted to talk a little bit about actual magic presented in Lovecraft works just to kind of, tail into where we're going with this. You know, like I said, one of the big things is, of course, that we don't get very direct instruction in magic from a Lovecraft book, as you would think. This is the same guy that, like, the running joke is like, oh, it's this horrible creature, and it's so inconceivable. But, yeah, but what's it look like? Can't tell you. Can't tell you. <laughs> it's inconceivable. Inconceivable! Inconceivable. But the, the whole... The whole of magic as presented in Lovecraft is usually comes from accounts written after the fact of strange goings on, lights, weird voices, and strange cases of possession or things like that. Very, 
very rarely do you see much of anything at all as far as what's something I could steal and start using. You know, you don't you don't see a lot of that. And uh, a lot of the quote unquote occult or magical goings on that happen are notable that people didn't even do anything where they, they just went to the wrong place. You come across the island and a, a group of sailors do what hundreds of hundreds of occultists were trying to do on accident and they wake Cthulhu or the, the man in the nameless city who simply by going in there and looking around awakens the, uh, the sleeping race within the city. And that's another recurring theme of Lovecraft, especially as he makes, as he creates this Cthulhu mythos, there's the overwhelming theme of Earth has been inhabited by entities that are much older than us, and they've done a great deal before we were even around, and they're going to come back and fuck you up. Yeah. The, um, the few instances where we get actual magic, like certifiable magic things are like in a story as called the horror at Red Hook, which is ostensibly about like an occult conspiracy. Yeah. Existing in the ghettos of a stand in for New York. Right. Again, in the same way that Providence becomes this, um, haunted place for Lovecraft. When he moves to New York and writes for a while, he takes that with him to New York. But the few bits in there that we can point to is there's an invocation to Hecate taken from Hippolytus's Philosophomenum. You keep using the word. I don't think it means what you think it means. It's, um, I won't bother reading it. It's an interesting little invocation. It's definitely something that you could go appropriate for yourself. And then the other thing, which leads to another point I wanted to talk about sort of in the background of Lovecraft himself is there's a very interesting inscription. It's hell. Hello. Him. Sother. Emmanuel. Sabaoth. Agala. Tetragrammaton. Ageros. Sotheos. Shuros. Athatanos. Eova. Va. Adonai. Sadia. Homovidon. Messia. Ishrei. And do you know where that came from? The Bible. Close. The Encyclopedia Britannica. Lovecraft literally copied it out of a volume of the Encyclopedia Britannica that was on magic. So that is what I wanted to talk about that for one reason, because, and we will talk about it more in a little bit when we get into where the developers of Lovecraft magic, as it were. But there's a long standing belief that Lovecraft was an occultist of some ilk and he was very well versed in these sorts of things. And I think that that more than anything stands in to tell you that no, no, he was not. Well, I might be able to tell you something that could at least be a semi-decent counterpoint to that later. Oh. Yeah, yeah, we'll get into it. Uh, Another one that's probably notable uh, is the silver key and then the statement of Randolph Carter. Right. Where Randolph are- Carter, his uh every every um nineteenth century writer has to have a stand in at some point. And Randolph Carter is most certainly our stand in for HP Lovecraft. Well, I could make the argument that a lot of them are 
stand-ins for Lovecraft, but Randolph Carter is definitely Lovecraft, especially in the Silver Key. But it's a notable example of a a man who uses uses an occult working to slip the bonds of time and return to his childhood home where he was happy and then slip off into some other unseen world. And then his later dream cycles also elaborate on that, where there's the notion that the dream world that we exist in, we have this surface level dream world, and then there is a greater dream world that is a a place of great magical potency and mythic proportions that is in some ways more real than the world that we inhabit. The entire novel, The Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, is a tour de force of this world where we get to see a lot of its workings and peoples and such. And it's a really nice piece of fantasy that is something very, you know, it's, it's almost like Lord of the Rings in a way, like much more simplified. Cause you know, Tolkien's like built a universe that was meant to be like actual close to mythology. And, but Lovecraft does a very similar kind of move with this where it's, it's again, it's, it's a, like a high fantasy novel and it somehow manages to tie in to the rest of the Lovecraft mythos. Absolutely. Then other notables examples would be the curious case of Charles Dexter Ward, where it is an actual breakdown of Charles Dexter Ward's descent into insanity because he picks up the occult workings of an ancestor and it describes notable experiences of his ancestor doing magic and then being killed by the local townsfolk when they figure out he's a big spooky woo-woo. And then Charles Dexter Ward eventually becomes possessed by the spirit of his ancestor. And then the only case of magic really being shown as a, a positive would be the Dunwich Horror. Right. Where through magic a set of sons are sired by Yogg-Sothoth mating with a woman and then a professor uses an incantation to repel the named the the title character i suppose the the dunwich horror itself he uses an incantation to send it back through the veil and that's probably the only case of magic being used to get out of a bind rather than just getting you into one right right but there's lots of other strange mystic mythic ideas presented in the mythos like Randolph Carter speaks to one of the the old gods, one of the old ones, Yogg-Sothoth, and Yogg-Sothoth kind of explains to him this sort of non-dual, all-encompassing idea of everything is Yogg-Sothoth, or at least Randolph Carter is. Well, and yeah, and that's, I believe that's through the gates of the Silver Key. Oh, right. Which was not written by Lovecraft. Oh, wait, what? I don't believe so. Hold on. Does that align with what we know? It, it does not at oh, all wait, 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 align wait. with it was, what we know, It was Jim. co-written. Yeah, so it was, it, it was written by uh, Lovecraft, but it was also 
written. It was also co-written by what's his name, E. Hoffman Price. Right, right. So I, I suppose that's another one, and I'm not sure if that moment of revealing of Yogg-Sothoth is all man is Yogg-Sothoth, and now everything that exists is Yogg-Sothoth, and Yogg-Sothoth is the key and the gate and the keeper of the gate. I'm not sure if that came from Lovecraft himself. It's, it's, it's very out of character for most of it. Well, not exactly, because he does have a sort of similar idea being presented in um, Beyond the Walls of Sleep, which is a story ostensibly about a man working in a mental hospital where a man has been committed because he killed his entire family and he keeps having these wild dreams and he comes back to and he doesn't remember who he is and he talks about pursuing the enemy through fields and flying through these astral realms and such. And the big climax of it is the, the man who we find is like the avatar or has some sort of connection to this great astral being. And then we find out that our, our lead is another one of his um, brothers as it were or one of his compatriots in this realm. Reaching the realm that is realer than the world we live in, yeah. Yeah, the transcendent realm of dream. Dream and, is a very big thing for Lovecraft, which itself is a very occult idea, I suppose. And I, I suppose that, in a way, if we were to really go through a timeline of Lovecraft's writing, we could see there, there does begin to show some changes, where it, at first it, it is very much there's these things beyond our comprehension and they're absolutely terrifying. You know, it's all Cthulhu and Shugoths and the mountains of madness. There's, there's nothing to be found beyond our little Island of ignorance other than Darby dragons. And at some point Lovecraft does begin to branch out in certain ways and show this notion of maybe there is a wonder and maybe there's an awe to these things that are so beyond our simple little world. And his, his poetry was always a little more, it also has that element of horror to it, but it does have a, that, a, like you said, that wonder to it as well. Yeah. Yeah. And before we go any further, we should probably state that as far as Lovecraft's public and private statements he was not he was a staunch materialist he was a staunch materialist and not believe in that stuff he fancied himself a descendant of rationalism he didn't buy into this stuff he but at the same time at his heart he was a romantic in the classical sense of the word where he sought to aspire to something greater than what the world offered and that manifested as disillusionment this was a man who hated everywhere and everyone yeah i mean what was the cat's name i'll shoot myself in the head you can tell me that cat's name go ahead you're what you're precious <laughs> and we will also we can we'll we'll get out in front of this too is that lovecraft had exceeding amounts of bigotry in his work you can't it to to try to ignore it or to not acknowledge it is is a a, a 
big mistake. And I think if you look at previous episodes, I think we've said enough to to say that it's fucked. That you shouldn't. You just, you know, it's very simple. Of like, if you're a bigot, fuck you. You know, it's. But at the same time, I think there is a certain level where you can look at the work and not you can enjoy Lovecraft and simultaneously understand how deeply flawed and fucked up a lot of it is. Well, it it kind of goes with one of my other favorite writers like Charles Bukowski, where Bukowski is writing about things that are incredibly fucked up in a lot of ways to our kind of normal sensibilities, I suppose. But William S. Burroughs, Burroughs, I mean, Crowley, Crowley, Celine, Hound. I mean, I talk about Heidegger all the time, but enough of that. There is one strange thing that we can point to for Lovecraft, and it works very well for um, our uh, chaos magic adjacent community. Where Lovecraft talks about doing magic as a child. He does. In his autobiographical accounts, he discusses being a child and building altars to the old Hellenic gods. He never, the the Christianity he was familiarized with as a child never resonated and never took hold. He didn't, but instead he, he felt a calling where, as I think many of us did in weird ways, we were all probably weird children and he did something with it. He built altars. He made offerings. And there's a particular quote that I should have found before this, but he's discussing the irrationality of Christians coming to him and such talking about like, Oh, I've experienced Christ. And he's like, anyone that tells me that they have experienced the reality of Christ, I can tell that I've seen the great God Pan hiding in the forest. That's very strange considering his, uh, his literary mentor of, uh, Oh, it's undoubtedly, a, um, an Arthur Mankin reference. Yeah. Yeah. The great God pan, the great God pan. And that's a, and that in and of itself is a very chaos magic statement of, I said it in the last episode is that I don't know if there's a soul or a spirit or gods or anything, but I think the experience of these things is incredibly real. Right. So that being said, Let's talk about the shift between when people stop reading Lovecraft as great spooky fiction and start t- taking him seriously from an occult perspective. Well, it happened almost immediately. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, of course. There's, there's another quote that I couldn't find for this episode, and I'm so mad I haven't been able to find it. I have to wade through the entire collected works because it, it was the only place I've seen it published is just a little blip before a story where he's talking about... Right, he, he wrote a letter talking about another one of his um, collaborators to one of his collaborators. Fucking hack. Yeah, exactly. He just tells us, he talks how much shit about it. He just hates this guy and he's so stupid and he has no talent for writing and he's such a moron that he thinks the, that when he first met me, I had to tell him that Cthulhu and the Necronomicon weren't real. Certain older <laughs> handicapped people who are pathetically in need of some cheering influence. These, even when I recognize them, is incapable of improvement. When he first made Lumley's acquaintance, Lovecraft reported with great amusement that the old gentleman actually believed in Yogg-Sothoth and Cthulhu. 
And my understanding is that a great many of his admirers were taken in on the same ride. They People thought that Narahalithotep and Cthulhu and the Necronomicon written by Abdul Al-Hazred was an absolute reality. That was something that he had cobbled. They were wondering, where can I find a copy of the Mishkat- of the uh, the narcotic manuscript and everything else? Yeah. Where's Miskatonic University? See, here's the real problem because, you know, we make, we're making the joke about the, the story of the, the, the alchemist that comes and kills the family that has a name like fucking, you know, Dark Wizard Le Bleu. <laughs> Dark Le Wizard. Yeah. But then he names the guy who wrote the Necronomicon Has Red. All Has Red. All Has Red. All Has Red. It's literally a pun. But that being said, I think what really finally does it in for Lovecraft and makes him a part of the occult world is everyone's favorite little nutter butter, everyone's favorite son of the sun, the wonderful and enigmatic Kenneth Grant. If, if everyone... If anyone is responsible for Lovecraft's continued relevance to actual occultism, I think it's Kenneth Grant. Yeah, if if Crowley is our Uncle Al, then Grant has to be crazy cousin Kenneth or something. Yeah. He's definitely at the family reunion and everyone's happy to see him, but we all know, boy's a little off. Yeah, yeah, and it starts early. It starts in his very first major work, the, uh, the Magical Revival. Should we give a brief on who Kenneth Grant is for anyone who doesn't know? Because I can do it in like three lines. Go for it. He was a student of Crowley who Crowley couldn't stand. (laughs) It was later in Crowley's life. He became friends with Crowley because he, he was a big professed occultist, obviously. He read everything. And he found Crowley books at a time where Crowley books were not what they are now, where you can just fucking find them all over the place or on the fucking Amazon and shit. You're walking down the street and you trip over three Crowley books. Ah, damn it. Another copy of Lieber Ava. He would, he kept, he was writing to Crowley at these addresses, trying to join the OTO and the AA and stuff. And, you know, Crowley didn't live there anymore and shit like that. But he finally meets him and he became his secretary. And by secretary, I mean like his gopher. Like he would just like, he'd get him fucking shit and he'd go cash his checks for him and all that kind of nonsense. Probably get him tobacco. Kenneth, will you go get my opium prescription? Yes. And you know what he, how he paid him? Magical teachings. Which is hilarious because I can hear all the people being mad about like, oh, you shouldn't profit from magical stuff. And it's like Crowley literally out here like, if you go get me my opium prescription, I'll initiate you into the ninth degree. The Christopher S. Hyatt quote of I have a ninth degree from the California OTO and a ninth degree from Rigardi. And between the two, I can't get a hamburger at McDonald's. Crowley knew better. You said, no, you give them the initiation and then they give you the hamburger. So I'm going to read a little bit from the magic revival. Well, first I have one more thing to say. What? 
I will gladly initiate you Tuesday for a hamburger today. <laughs> Freighter Wimpy. <laughs> so after a little diatribe talking about drug use and magic with Crowley, we have this. Howard P. Lovecraft, the New England writer of macabre tales, would have agreed with Crowley's de- depreciation of the use of drugs in favor of more natural means of magic control. In a letter dated June 11, 1920, Lovecraft wrote, I never took opium, but if I can't beat him for dreams from the age of three or four up, I'm a dashed liar. Space, strange cities, weird landscapes, unknown monsters, hideous ceremonies, oriental and Egyptian gorgeousness, and indefinable mysteries of life, death, and torment were daily, or rather nightly, commonplace to me before I was six years old. Today is the same, save for a slightly increased objectivity. But Lovecraft seems not to have passed the final pylons of initiation, as evidenced by his stories, and particularly his poems, in which, at the last dreadful encounter, he invariably recoiled, resolved not to know what horror lay concealed behind the mask of his most critical incarnation. He was haunted by his dweller on the threshold, failed to resolve the enigma of his own particular sphinx, and because of this, no doubt, Feared to use drugs in case his nightmare vision swept him beyond the point of no recall. Understandably terrified of crossing the abyss, he forever recoiled on the brink and spent his life in a vain attempt to deny the potent entities that moved him. Little wonder the tales he wrote are among the most hideous and powerful ever penned. And that's really the rub. Kenneth Grant paints Lovecraft as a failed initiate, as someone who was called to action through his dreams and through his over overall disposition to the world and said all these things that Lovecraft wrote about these were magical experiences these were the inner and outer manifestations of occult workings but he simply didn't go all the way well it's even it's even deeper than that because Kenneth Grant has an entire theory on art and fiction and creativity and genius that's informed by Crowley's writings on genius. Um, Anyone who knows the concept of the HGA or, I don't know, even the daimonion of Socrates, they kind of get this idea and it's not something that's going to like shock them. But Kenneth Grant's real rub is that All of the occult, all of the creative works that these people have are part of a sort of cosmic consciousness. It's a force beyond the self. In fact, another section from the Magical Revival, just reading it briefly, fiction as a vehicle has often been used by occultists. Ideas not acceptable to the everyday mind, limited by prejudice and spoiled by a breadwinning education can be made to slip past the censor and by the means of the novel, the poem, the short story be effectively planted in soil that would otherwise reject or destroy them. Writers such as Arthur Mackin, Brody Enns, Algernon Blackwood, and H.P. Lovecraft are in this, car- this category. Their novels and stories contain some remarkable affirmities with those aspects of Crowley's cult dealt with in the present chapter. Themes of resurgent atavism that lure people to destruction, whether it be in the vision of Pan or as in the case of Mackin and Dunsany, 
or even the more sinister traffic with denizens of forbidden dimensions as in the tales of Lovecraft. The reader is plunged into a world of barbarous names and incomprehensible signs. Lovecraft was unacquainted both with the name and the work of Crowley, yet some of his fantasies reflect Howard's assortedly the salient themes of Crowley's cult. And then there's an interesting little chart that just compares some stuff that HP wrote and some things that Crowley wrote. And I'm not going to lie to you folks, this is where we see Kenneth Grant at his best. And by that, I mean Kenneth Grant just finding the most cherry-picked nonsense he can come to make it all sound similar. We have all as if the Book of the Arab. This is frequently referred to as all-powerful in a magical sense. And then he compares it with El Vel Legis, the Book of the Law. This book is claimed by AC to contain the supreme spells. And then he has the Great Old Ones. The great old ones of night, the great old ones of the night of time, a phrase which occurs repeatedly in the rituals of the golden dawn. Yog Sothoth, a barbarous name to evoke most evil, and Soot Thoth, Soot Typhon, identified as Crowley's holy guardian angel. Yeah, but it, it kind of goes on like that. Like it's all very shoehorned together. It's. It is an exercise in a strange sort of comparative mythology. It's, it's what happens when you, I believe it's, it's what Robert Anton Wilson referred to as the metaprogrammer in a way. It's the ability to assemble information and make it fit in weird ways. And if we're just talking about interpretation as, uh, I believe Nietzsche said, all we have is interpretation. It's definitely not something that I could say has a historical basis or anything like that, but it's it's where Kenneth Grant went with it. And he had this notion of the magician. The goal of the magician was to reach between the zones of real and unreal and sort of whole things in between. Kenneth Grant also takes a stab at pointing out Lovecraft's occult pedigree through the connection of the various other writers who were members of groups of like the Golden Dawn. Mencken was Mencken and Algernon Blackwood both. Right. And honestly, he doesn't write another book that doesn't extensively reference Lovecraft in some way. And he very much takes the various bits of Lovecraft ideas, things that don't even necessarily connect at all, and builds onto his own sort of theories of the draconian tradition throughout history. And, you know, there's hell. Like, I mean, the the Typhonian trilogy, and don't let the Typhonian trilogies, because there's fucking nine books... And I've gone through all of them recently and it's read like Star them. Wars. Yeah. I've I've read all of them in kind of preparation for this, and there's not a single one that doesn't have lots of Lovecraft in it. And even if it's as simple as pointing out like references in the earlier works, or to the point where he just actively subsumes the Cthulhu mythos into his own magic and starts talking about its relevance. The, the other big one that I think it more, is more important to note than anything is 
a very strange, strange trip. This is later Kenneth Grant Typhonian trilogies. This is the outer gateways. He has an entire chapter dedicated to the word Tutalu. And Tutalu, T-U-T-U-L-U, is a word that appears in one of the holy books of Thelema, one of the class A um, text, Liber Lapis Lazuli. And it's just a single use of it. It's spoken as part of a, one of the phrases. There's three magical words spoken, and one of them is Tutlu. And it later appears in the, um, the vision and the voice, Crowley's wonderful work of doing Enochian magic in the desert. And in that work, he mentions as he, he translates the rest of this bathic, as it would be called by Grant later, phrasing. He says that it's untranslatable. And Kenneth himself kind of expounds upon it through this entire thing because it's, oddly enough, used again in the second Aether, but not really as a little bit of research will tell you. And this is really Kenneth Grant's sort of shining as he uh, goes through and sort of just doesn't quite get things right in a way that supports his theories. He has this whole idea of how it translates to who will attain and who shall attain. And he relates this word, obviously, to anyone that can understand words that sound similar to Cthulhu. You mean things sound like things? Things sound like things. Things sound, do things also possibly look like things? I guess. Oh my God, the hermetics were right. <laughs> As with my eyes, so in my hands. But and like I said, he gives this whole chapter giving all sorts of different explanations of this word and how it relates to the Aeon and how it relates to the crowning of Cthulhu upon the earth and various things. And he gives it the constant spin of this all sounds like really terrible, awful things because Lovecraft is a moralist and he can't understand things. So he thinks they're evil, but Crowley who is doesn't have a, that pesky moralism saw it for what it really is. But there's also this whole thing about it being the word of the Aeon. Cause Crowley didn't actually pronounce his word, which goes into, if you don't know anything about the Lama, all you need to know is that it's a big deal that every Magus, which is like the big, big top dog fucking position in his magical system says a word that proclaims a new Aeon or something like that to that effect. And like the other maguses in the world are like Moses and Krishna and Tahuti, Siddhartha, Siddhartha, you know, the Buddha, like all these things like, and you know, obviously the last one is Crowley by the end of it. I think what we're really getting at here as far with Kenneth Grant and the Lovecraft magic is Kenneth Grant takes these very interesting kind of ideas and relates them and makes them intelligible. You can drink now because I said intelligible. <laughs> he makes the phenomena intelligible in terms of Thelema and his sort of greater Typhonian cult ideas that he would develop later. And the big 
not really issue, but the the thing to understand about this is that as far as Kenneth Grant's Typhonian OTO and everything else is that this is it's magic, but it's it's mysticism magic, I guess. It's magic for the realization of the true will and everything else like that, rather than well, magic. I think there's I think there's there's levels of like magic as change and conformity with will too, but Kenneth Grant's big ideas, what Kenneth Grant cares about is this sort of it's almost like a Jungian collective unconscious, mm-hmm. but it's a lot more overtly mystical. Mm-hmm. It's the it's a it's a it's a magical current, right? Which is great stuff. But when you can tap into currents, and what I mean by a current is, if I were to put it in chaos magic terms, a current is a an idea stream. It is a system or a notion that allows you to get in sort of a a particular stream or pattern where things will play out in certain ways. It's not it's not unlike paradigm shifting, but it's the idea of when you and this is avoid and I'm using this in a way that's trying to avoid concepts like energy and consciousness everything else but it's the idea of tapping into something to try that other tapping into something that other people have also tapped into and sort of carrying the ball as it were but what kenneth grant is concerned about is aeonics what he's concerned about is metaphysics and what he's concerned about is the mystical experience even the the talking of tapping into atavisms which i think is really interesting stuff it's it's for the purposes of magical revelation. It's that's why he ended up with people like Bertio, who are arts artsy people. You know, the, this is good stuff if you're a kooky creative, because it's the kind of thing that you can tap into and maybe you can do something with. It's not necessarily the the type of magic you get into to like get money or a Bugatti or throw a fireball, you know, his, his workings are very much related to the same sort of things that Crowley was on about is that you had to, you had to wake up to reality and, you know, maybe I'm not saying that there wasn't magic going on to like make things happen or try to get things, but a lot of it was they were very this is very big picture magic. Right, right. And I think there's a nice quote here again from Alistair Crowley and the Hidden God that I think kind of sums up a lot of Kenneth Grant saw as the magical and occult value of HP Lovecraft. Although people are not yet generally aware of the subtle influences that Crowley has been instrumental in focusing, nevertheless, the breakdown of obsolete religious formula, the abrupt change in values, and the present ability of certain types of mind to respond to the current shows clearly that Crowley, Spare, Lovecraft, Gorsh, Fortune, etc. are not the originators of such a current, but merely its transmitters. This is the touchstone of the real worth and greatness of art. 
does it act as a channel for such cosmic influences or like so much of so-called modern art? Is it merely the expression of a private dislocated psyche faultily connected with, or even entirely cut off from the extra dimensional sources of creative energy that inspires all true artists? It is not easy and sometimes exceedingly difficult to discriminate between the two forms of expression, which may be divided for in this instance and in this instant only into acts of white and black magic. Lovecraft's art would have been black indeed had it really been spun as he supposed from the depths of his own disconnected psyche that it was not. So I think I have demonstrated. So for anyone that doesn't speak nerd, (laughs) What he's saying is that if Lovecraft got his ideas from where he thought he got his ideas, namely his own disillusioned, sad, New Englander boy psyche, this would be an instance of the, 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 the sickest and lowest forms of art. But instead, what it is is that Lovecraft was the unwilling or unaware transmitter of a greater cosmic truth that goes back beyond him, beyond Crowley, beyond time, beyond the golden dawn, beyond the the pyramids of Egypt, beyond the gardens of Babylon, beyond, like you said, beyond time, from before time, from outside of time, where the the great cosmic boogaboo lives right kenneth grant was also very big on like aliens and ufo type stuff in a way and he a lot of people are very much into the weird a lot of people that have the ufo occult connection are people that would either really dig kenneth grant or do dig kenneth grant or they're the opposite and they're like no they're these are all demons well, right. And that's sort of the, like, that's the good thing about Kenneth Grant, because Kenneth Grant is probably one of the first people to be like, yes, they are all demons. And yes, it is all in your head. And yes, it's all magic. And yes, none of this is real. And yes, all of it is real. A, um, a former student of Kenneth Grant was talking about uh, the book that we're about to talk about now, the, uh, the Simon Necronomicon. And at the time it was being published and people were working with it. This student was having some issues with it because he knew just from reading it, that this was not what Lovecraft was talking about. This was not the purported Necronomicon of Abdul Hazred. And he's like, it's fake. It's all just a work of fiction. And Kenneth Grant wrote back to him with a long list of books, like the Bible, the Talmud, the Zohar, the Chaldean oracles, the grimoire Verum, the um, greater key of Solomon. And he's like, these were all works of fiction created by men. And I think that's part of why Kenneth Grant's uh, ideas have become so commonplace in chaos magic. It's all bullshit. How do you use it? Exactly. So moving on, we're going to talk about the first major purported copy of the Necronomicon to surface. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to discuss two books that claim to actually be 
the dreaded Necronomicon written by Abdul Alhazred. And then I'm going to talk about a book that is decidedly not claiming that. The first one is simply called the Necronomicon. It is commonly referred to as the Simon Necronomicon because the supposed author or um, editor or founder discoverer. Yeah, that's the word. The guy who handed over this manuscript. Here you go. Wasserman. Yeah. Get it published. So Wasserman of all people, Riff Wasserman. He's kind of an idiot, but yeah, he, he's responsible for getting us a lot of good books. He only identified himself as Simon and there's loads and loads of people who have ideas about who it could have been. I've, I've seen some people saying, Oh, Wasserman made this up himself. I've seen, uh, I can't remember his name, but it doesn't. The point is, it really doesn't matter who wrote this. It could have been, it might have been kooky Kenneth Grant. The The point is, is that a book got published claiming to be this book that the guy who first talked about it said didn't exist. Man, I can hear HP somewhere in hell right now just saying, magic isn't real. And hearing the wah, wah, wah horns. <laughs> but um, this is a, a very notable book because it has gained a place uh, of uh, of infamy for being fake and being fake as shit, and definitely not being the the book that it was purported to be. And here's my personal big issue with it: when I finally got you gave me this copy. You actually gave me this book. And ironically, it was a Christmas gift from years ago. Oh, yeah, it was, wasn't it? Yep, yep, yep. And you're, I remember when you gave it to me, you said, hey, you need to do some nonsense. So I got you a stupid nonsense book. Yep, yep, yep. yep. You always need some nonsense in your magic. You get too serious on it. Absolutely. My big issue is that there isn't really a whole lot of fucking Lovecraft in this at all. Not at, at all. all. And it's like, notably, the the introduction lays out a whole lot of groundwork about who Lovecraft is and who Alistair Crowley is and makes a point of doing the Kenneth Grant thing of equating the two saying that these two were driving at the same ancient older than time source. Yeah. We get another chart, which is somehow less good than Kenneth Grant's. Yeah. But the, the introduction lays out a lot and it talks about that the origin point of both of them is ancient Samaria. Ooh. Yeah. The Samarian tradition. Yeah. As, as Crowley famously said, we are the rediscovering of the Samarian tradition. And it even, it makes a, some comment about the Yazidis and stuff like that, which I just think is very tasteless. I always love point. when people talk about the Yazidis because all we ever seem to find out about the Yazidis is that we don't actually know what the hell they believe. Mm-mm. But people calling them devil worshippers has contributed to a lot of really fucked up shit. And if you're not aware of the literal genocide going on to the Yazidi people, you should be because people are being killed, people are being displaced from their ancestral roots and homes it's it's terrible stuff and it's It's been going on for years now too yeah and it's it's literally because they have an insular um exclusionary religious tradition that people aren't okay with and they 
they're lab- they're literally labeled as devil worshipers. My point being, well, and I'll say this is that I have a very strong fondness for Yazidis where everything I've read about them that I don't even know if it's accurate, but it seems like a very fascinating religion. And I'd love to know more. And I'd love to, I'd love to, to hopefully think that one day maybe we will get let in on their world, but it's also, it's not our place to go banging on their doors and saying, tell us about your God. We want to know the little comparison chart is even worse because mostly what this book relies on is Sumerian reconstruction. And it was at a time when, when this was written, I don't even think we had a full version of the descent of Ishtar, which is like a story that got thrown around so much before we didn't even know the ending for it. And when we found out the ending, it was honestly very disappointing <laughs> because it's, it's Ishtar is painted as a, uh, almost as this like triumph over death thing. And it's, that's not how it works. And it's mostly about her, like getting back at her husband. And it's, it's, weird. it's a weird story. It's like her husband doesn't mourn her while she was gone. And then she's mad about it. It's uh oh, am I right? Fellas, your wife gets dragged to the underworld to be held captive. And know. she comes back like you didn't mourn me. Yeah. But uh, notably, it compares the Dunwich Horror to Karunzan to Pazuzu. And I don't think any of those things are the same at all. They got, they got a Z in two of them. Two of them got a Z sound in them. Um, and then Azathoth and Iwas. And then Azogthoth, which I don't think it shows up anywhere in Sumerian lore at all. No, you made um, that up. <laughs> There is a notable thing talking about one of the versions of the Sumerian creation myth where Marduk slay uh, Marduk slays Kingu, who is one of the monsters birthed by Tiamat, and from his blood he makes mankind. So there's the notion of mankind is the the progeny of the slain enemy. In the same way that the the world was made from the slaying of uh, Tiamat's mate Abzu and stuff like that, right? And that's a pretty common mythological idea. But in this, it paints it as these were the you know Tiamat and Abzu are equated with Cthulhu. Really? Now mm-hmm. they're they're equated with Cthulhu and the Great Old Ones, or the the. Uh, the ancient ones, that sort of thing. But it, the, here's the big issue is that this shows a fundamental misunderstanding or an intentional misunderstanding of Lovecraft where it claims that Lovecraft is showing a ongoing battle of good versus evil in which the elder gods versus the great old ones and if you read the later Cthulhu mythos, particularly like Durlith and people who came after, there is some of that where there's this attempt to sort of make sort of human gods, some things that are more reminiscent of the Norse and Hellenic gods who basically kicked ass and took names and beat all the tentacles back. But Lovecraft never touches on that. He t- he talks about Nodens at one point, but Nodens is even described as like a a a, pri- a gray primal horror, you know. Yeah, and the other mention of like more human like gods that comes up in like 
the dream quest of unknown Kadath kind of makes them like secondary. They're like earth gods or and there's the, there's the outer gods, which is one of my favorite stories where it talks about the gods that live up on this great mountain sort of thing. Right. And no one's ever supposed to go up there, but a guy who through his hubris thinks that he is wise and that he should be allowed to see them goes up there and he's pulled away by the outer gods, the ones who are greater and protect the lesser earth, earthen gods. So imagine like you went up to Olympus and you were carted off by Yogg-Sothoth and Cthulhu and Narlathotep. <laughs> like you were <laughs> the idea that like you think you found God and then you find out God, then you find God's boss or like God <laughs> or worse, like God's big brother who wants to protect them. <laughs> All right, Jesus, I'm coming for you. Oh, what's this? Oh no, mega Jesus. <laughs> I'm being pulled into the sky and he's just gone. Yeah, which is, I, I find that to be a very fascinating story. But the, the point is, is that Lovecraft really doesn't paint a good versus evil story at all, like ever. The whole point is that Cthulhu isn't evil. Cthulhu doesn't care. Yeah, you're an ant. You're a, you're a germ. You're a speck. You can't understand the machinations of Cthulhu or, or Azathoth. Like, Naralithotep is probably the closest to a human-like entity, and he's just there to fuck with you. Right, yeah. He just causes problems. Yeah, he's, he's in the, the way that we sort of try to equate gods of Lovecraft with other gods, people tend to put Naralithotep into the, you know, Mercury Hermes messenger of the... I would... Yeah, he's Great like old ones he's thing. like the he's like their herald, but he he's somewhere between like the devil and Loki almost. Yeah, he he. Anytime he ever shows up, he's just kind of making people's lives terrible. Yeah, and, and it, tricking them. And it's it's very much that the the machinations and plans and goals of the great old ones and the outer gods and all these things are just so far beyond anything we could comprehend that. That's why that drives you crazy. That's why it's maddening because you won't be able to wrap your head around it. Even the the cultists who want to raise the great old ones, they know that the world will be destroyed in a fiery ball of ecstasy where Cthulhu will show us the new ways of madness and pleasure, you know? Yeah, and that's um that's one of the more direct kind of comparable things to Crowley, I think. Oh, yeah, actually. It's a very similar idea of Crowley thinking that, you know, Nuit Hadith and Rahor Kuit, the book of the law was revealed so we can, you know, reach a new understanding and consciousness of humanity's divinity and such. Okay. And so here's the problem. None of that is in this book. Not a word of it. Not what you get. Once you get past the introduction that makes some, some strange comparisons and it talks about those that can rouse Leviathan where it treats Cthulhu as the, the evil end of this great magical power. It even compares it to Wilhelm Reich's Orgone where it's the notion of like there's the god power, I suppose, that can be tapped into. But it has to present it as in there's the side of the light, which is the elder gods of, of – and they're all Sumerian gods. They're Marduk and they're Ayana and there's um, 
God, what Nurgle and other ones like that. And then on the other side, you have Tiamat and you have Cthulhu and you have, um, you know, Pazuzu. You have these demons and stuff like that. But it's, it's very like obvious good and evil sort of things. And all of the all of the the magic or most of the magic that it presents is actually a sort of step by step ascent of planetary magic where you're building these particular seals and doing these very and it's very ornate. It's like it Isn't was, there something in there about like having a sword that's like consecrated with blood? You've got to make the sword. <laughs> right, yeah. You it's very old all, type stuff. And that's stuff. the thing, is that all of this stuff is uh, if anybody has actually done this book to the letter. You had a lot of time and a lot of money and access to big spots on mountains by yourself and stuff like that. And that's in a weird way, that's almost the 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 wink wink of this book where it's like you don't know if it's bullshit. You can't try. It's like it, if it didn't work, it's probably because you didn't do any of the 400 things that I could point to that are just impractical for modern for modern people. But the fact is, is that there just isn't a whole lot that is Cthulhu at all. There's, there's just isn't there's a, there's a couple demon sigils where you can summon up something. There's a thing where it's 50 different names of Marduk, which Marduk had a bunch of names because he's a composite God. As far as my understanding, at least he's a composite God of the, like everybody, it was like, oh yeah, this is like your primal guy. He's he's kind of like Marduk, isn't it? Oh, he's probably just Marduk. We'll we'll just add that to the list. But most then there's like the seven stages of planetary where it's like it starts at the moon and it goes to then it goes to Mercury and Mar and Venus and yeah, very normal Mars. Western esoteric stuff. Yeah, and that's fine because because it's just but all it really is is Sumerian reconstructionism. And not even particularly good Sumerian reconstructionism. Definitely not historic reconstructionism. It's just that it's the type of thing that you'd imagine from people who were familiar with Western traditions of magic and figuring, and also to the, to the extent of like understanding the Arabic influence, how this stuff was brought over into Greece and then it spread into Europe later than the, the, Renaissance revival brings a lot of that stuff back and all that. So there's, you know, there's talismans and planetary hours and you got to make this seal at the right day on the right hour and cover it in a silk cloth and never use it for anything else and stuff like that. And you got to go to a mountain where no one's around and do this. And it's just, I've fooled around with some stuff and I just, I'll tell you right off the bat, it's like, I don't have, I don't have time or the resources to get a, a fucking gold slab and carve a fucking uh, fucking sigil into it. Like what? <laughs> I, if you do, I'm happy for you. Congrats on your raving success. What do you need magic for? <laughs> <laughs> but it's just, and that's the thing is that ultimately this book is. <sighs> it's not very Lovecraft. It's not, it's, it's not Lovecraftian at all. And if this is supposed to be the book that drives people absolutely batshit crazy why is 90% of it talking about the good gods that are like supposed to be keeping the, the tentacly boogaboos away? Right. Why isn't it talking about how to summon a Shogoth? That might be in here. I don't remember. It's been a minute. 
I wish I could say I read this whole book again, but it's like a lot of it is just like, here's the incantation. Here's a lot of the barbarous names. And yeah, stuff it, like it that. is a grimoire. It's like actually yeah. trying to give you magic stuff to do. Yeah. It's not like Kenneth Grant who's giving you a whole lot of theory. Yeah. Which ironically makes it a less enjoyable read, you know? Yeah. Because it's just like, am I going to do the spells in preparation for this? No. I did mention I got that weird kooky sword. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, that, so I was planning on doing something with this, and I am, I'm still going to do that, <laughs> you know, because uh, I said I would. But the fact is, is that this isn't very Lovecraft. It's just not. And, uh, th- you know, that's, that's fine. It's just like... It's marketing is what it is. It's yeah. like, you know, well, people like, oh, I have this shitty Sumerian um, inspired grimoire that I've been working on. Hey, Wasserman, who, what will make this sell? Well, I just, I hope. Just slap the Necronomicon on it. Yeah. Well, and, and it ultimately, cause it's ultimately what, what gets me about it is just, I, I wanted like an evil, I wanted an evil grimoire that was going to do like all the bad things. Cause then it's like, at least it's kind of entertaining. Uh, Peter Carroll has a quote where he talks about like, yeah, we intentionally tell people not to try to raise the great old ones and stuff like that, knowing that some of them will do it <laughs> and that will bring the, 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 the cream of the crop will, you know, we'll <laughs> the good ones will do it. We don't tell them. Yeah, the, 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 those that break the rule and will possibly, maybe some of them will go crazy, but maybe some of them will bring about the great, the, the great work of summoning the, the dread alien beings. Yeah. And I don't know if he meant that metaphorically or if he was expressing an actual belief in these sort of entities, but it was, you know, it was neat. Um, but the problem is, is that you can't do that with this book, at least 90% of it. You know, you're not summoning, you're not, you, there's nary a tentacle. <laughs> now, the next Necronomicon we're going to talk about is far, far more interesting and really fits the bill. Do tell. Yes, yes. Um, I believe it was edited by George Hay. I don't remember the name of the researchers. But there is a lovely, lovely introduction by a man named Colin Wilson. Colin Wilson. And if you guys don't know who Colin Wilson is, he belongs in your trinity of Robert Anton Wilson, Peter Lambert Wilson, and Colin No Middle Name Wilson. <laughs> the three Wilsons. The three Wilsons. And they're, they're all great. They'll all, you know, they, you genuinely, if you don't know Colin Wilson, you should look into him. He wrote The Outsider, he wrote The Mind Parasites, which is his attempt at Lovecraftian fiction at the behest of Durlith. Yeah, and it's also got a lot of stuff about phenomenology and existentialism in it, which got my nerdy ass into it. And, a, and strangely enough, in a weird synchronicity, he talks about the circuits of human consciousness. That he does. But not the circuits that Wilson was talking about. The other Wilson. <laughs> the other Wilson. But it's, he is a fascinating character. He has a lot to say. There's a lot of great, great things magically you can get out of him. And he's not an, he's not an occultist, or at least 
Oh, he's kind of an occultist. He's not an occultist in like on a robe kind of way, but uh, the philosopher's stone, the strength of to dream, um, the outsider, like I mentioned. But anyway, the the whole point of uh, this other necronom. Oh, and the, there there's a tagline that can differentiate itself if you want to find it. It's called the Necronomicon, the Book of Dead Names. It's not exactly easy to find if you're trying to steal it, so you'll have to suck it up and buy it. But Ooh. yeah, but if you just want the the grimoire portion of the book, because most of it, or not most of it, but a large portion of it goes into an exploration of the possible origins of the Necronomicon. And this is what I was talking about earlier. Colin Wilson, through uh the research of George Hay and the the other researchers that were involved in it, and also his own correspondences with a couple professors basically found someone claiming that Howard Philip Lovecraft's father was a member of the Egyptian Lodge of Freemasonry. Dun dun dun. dun. For those of you that don't know, the Egyptian Lodge was founded by the great pretender and possibly greater magician, Count Cogliostro, <laughs> back around the time of the French Revolution. But we won't get into that too, too much. The point being that this lodge was like the spooky woo-woo. If there was a lot of Freemason lodges that were mostly like Christian plus or like fraternal orders for businessmen or revolutionary orders. Yeah. Or, or spots for political action. And I'm, and I'm not saying that the Egyptian lodge didn't have stuff to do with that, but supposedly the Egyptian lodge was, that's where some spooky shit was going on. Right. This is where, and you had to be invited into it, right? You had to already be a high ranking Mason in other organizations. You had to be a member of another Masonic order before you were considered is my understanding, but sort of like the OTO originally. Yeah. Lovecraft's father was a notable businessman at the time. He was in all likelihood a Freemason of some order or another, because just at the time it was expected that you were going to be a Mason. Yeah. And it's not that impressive. Yeah, it's not, it, it, it wasn't a hallmark of anything. I hate to tell you guys this, but you could probably go be a Freemason right now if you tried hard enough. It's not that hard. Yeah. The idea that he might have been an Egyptian Freemason. That's an idea with some teeth. That has some teeth. And then not only that, but also this person also attested that he was in possession of at least two notable uh, manuscripts of magic. One was the Picatrix. The other one was, well, the other one was uh, possibly <laughs> a manuscript translated by the court magician himself, John D. And it was an Arabic text. Now, what's notable is that in Lovecraft stories, the only known English translation of the Necronomicon was translated by the court magician, John D. John D. So at least in this introduction and in other parts of the book, there is the, it, the idea is floated that Lovecraft's father was an occultist in his own right, 
having been initiated into the mysteries and being quite mentally deranged in Lovecraft's early life, possibly influenced and told his son and maybe even left him certain things upon his death, which was very early in Lovecraft's life. So the notion that perhaps the Necronomicon is based on things that he was told by his father, or at least based on ideas that were put in his head as his, as his father went stark raving mad. And that book in question or manuscript in question is referred to as all as if, but that is the, the Necronomicon of Abdul Alhazred. As if. <laughs> now this book, and I won't get into the finer details of it, but this, if you want to do Lovecrafty magic, if you want to do the type of magic that like Lovecraft stories are talking about, like what was what was Charles Dexter Ward doing up in that attic while his mom and dad were going, that boy ain't right, I'll tell you what. This is actually <laughs> the book you want to get. It talks about it literally, you know, they it talks about uh it talks about the great old ones and the cities that they ruled before mankind existed and the the frozen cities underneath the North Pole and you know, all sorts of stuff. It talks about the summoning stones that you have to build. And also notably, you have to make a big goofy sword, stuff like that. You always need a good, big goofy sword in magic. It tells you how to summon and pass through the gates of Yogg-Sothoth and all sorts of stuff like that. Like this is, and, and almost because it's giving you more of the Lovecraft, I am, it feels even faker. <laughs> but it is but the problem is is that you read Alazif and this is what you wanted. Yeah, not, this is what you wanted. This is what you wanted. This you is want the, someone taking this one hundred percent seriously, trying to tell you that this Lovecraft shit is real. This Lovecraft shit definitely real and here's how to do it. And I I find I found this a much more enjoyable read. And I was really just looking for enough to be able to talk about this on the episode rather than reading to get stuff. I'm definitely going back through all of these as I'm going. But ultimately, if I had to tell you to read, if I had to tell you to read one or the other, skip the Simon Necronomicon. It's not that good. It's not, you won't it's even, not that good. you won't even get a, you won't even get a real laugh out of it. It's just, do you want to do a lot of ornate? grimoire planetary magic stuff. If you do, there are better books for it. Yeah. There are books that aren't lying to you. Yeah. I mean, they're, I guess they're all lying to you in a way, but are arguably lying to you. But the point being that this one, if you want one that isn't pissing on your leg and telling you it's raining and saying that this is the thing that Abdul Hazred wrote when it's got nothing to do with any of the shit that actually, <laughs> when it talked about it, when it talks about all the shit or that's in these stories, if you want something that is actually like, yeah, let's, you want a show goth? I'll show you. Come over here, get into the circle, <laughs> draw this on the ground. You know, that this is the book you want to grab. And it's just, it's, it really tickled my fancy. And I didn't even know it existed if I hadn't heard an audio of the Colin Wilson introduction. And it's just, 
it's the tits. So again, you won't have you won't have a good time trying to find a free copy of it, but I would honestly say it's worth your money if you're if you want to do like some spooky Lovecraft match if you want to do if you want to fuck around with things that have tentacles and will drive you mad this is the book to get <laughs> skip the simon necronomicon because it's fuck one it's fucking everywhere and i don't know why it's trash because wiser has a stranglehold on fucking occult books i don't know i shouldn't say it's trash i hear a lot of people saying that if you take it seriously and you do it, it'll be some stuff. It's like, yeah, but you're summoning like, but how can I take this seriously? But you're, 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 if you want to, if you want to treat it like it's real, you'll get crazy results. It's like, yeah, but your crazy results are going to be like ancient Sumerian gods. That's not what I wanted. I wanted something with an octopus head. I want to get a fish person in my apartment yep. right now. I want a deep one to wander up, even though I'm 300 miles inland. <laughs> He's going to follow the river. It'll come out of your toilet. <laughs> so in the, the Trinity of, uh, cause yeah, I have a trilogy. We step, we set, we started with Kenneth Grant. So we got the trilogies. The third book you wanted to talk about is now time for something completely different kind of in a way. Yeah. And I think that this is honestly, cause we're, this is notable because we're going from Kenneth Grant equating Lovecraft with Thelema and sort of building a composite system to the Simon Necronomicon and this Alazif, which is making a, a sort of an attempt at a wholesale standalone sort of system. Now we're going with Phil Hines' Pseudonomicon, which is just chaos magic. It's taking Lovecraft and going, all right, what does a chaos magic do with Lovecraft or what does a chaos magician do with Lovecraft? And Phil Hine is just on his a game. This is a great book. Like if I was going to tell you to get any of these books, it would be this one. It's short. It's sweet. It's to the point. And it comes at it in a very different, Oh, and you know, I forgot the one thing I forgot to mention about the Alazif is that it also still falls prey to a similar thing where it presents the idea that the great old ones are sealed away because there were some other gods that were like good that beat them away. And I don't get, it's like, it's, it's such an unnecessary step. I mean, maybe the idea, maybe there's the notion that like, you have to explain why isn't Cthulhu just, you know, out and about. Yeah. Out and about, but it could be just as easy. Like these are great cosmic cycles. Cthulhu wrecks shit. Then he goes to sleep. You know who, what's, why is it? Why does, why do we have to throw the, out this idea? And I blame Durleth. Yep. Always blame Durleth. The idea that we got the weird star with the eye symbol for the elder sign, even though we know it's just a twig. It's all Durla's fault. Yeah, the the idea that like you need the the idea that you need the counterpoint to the old ones misses misses the mark. Well, also, and I'm not sure how relevant it is, but if I recall correctly, wasn't Durleth like a Catholic or something? I don't remember. I think he's a religious guy of some order, which would make sense compared to Lovecraft, who was a staunch materialist atheist. 
Yeah, well, and and that's the thing is that because if you ask me, I think Cthulhu and the greater Cthulhu mythos is written with the notion of the universe being a cruel and indifferent place that is so much grander and scarier and incomprehensible to the teeny tiny specks walking around on this mud ball. And Cthulhu happens to be a great stand-in or a representation of that thing. That doesn't you don't necessarily have to mystify these entities. They're great metaphors of cosmic indifference. But I guess when people make devils, you want to try to make angels to go against them? At the same time, all as if doesn't sit on that for too much. It just sort of mentions it and then goes on. Again, I, I still highly recommend Necronomicon, the book of dead names, well above the Simon Necronomicon, but it's still, I did notice that when I was reading and it's like, eh, that unnecessary step didn't need to be in there. So what do we have in the pseudonomicon then? In the pseudonomicon, we get somebody who gets it, who understands the most, the, the alien qualities of these entities, these, these anti-human or, or anti-life entities in our sense of the world these these things that are so removed from humanity that none none of our petty nonsense fucking matters and he has a brilliant opening where he talks about basically having like a breakdown of hearing the call of cthulhu where he 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 starts he under he describes it as the 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 madness that gods bring upon us. He begins to understand and see Cthulhu in everything and the, the very nature that we exist in as this alien, uh, incomprehensible monster. Cthulhu is in the trees. Cthulhu's in the viruses that course through us. He's in the bacteria that's all around us. He's in the soup. He's in the soup. He's in the great ocean. You can feel his you can feel his presence, ubiquitous, <laughs> waiting, sleeping, but not dead, dreaming. Complete sidebar. This just reminds me of that thing about Deridad. The guy walked up to him and asked him about cinema, and he's like, oh, it's everywhere. It's in the bread, in the coffee, because he thought they said cinnamon. Yep. He was talking about cows, and then it's like, I am mispronouncing chaos. <laughs> I am Deridad. De Saucier, <laughs> evil wizard. <laughs> so what else is in the pseudonomicon? Do we get any more grimoire type things or is it more of a... No, there are, there are great exercises and explorations of all the notable Lovecraft entities. There's also a great primer, I guess would be the word for uh, a sort of chaos magic sensibilities of approaches to this sort of thing and why you should not only like how to do it, but why you should and what kind of benefits you can get the notion of antinomialism and, and breaking yourself down and pulling yourself apart by embracing the presence and understanding of these incredibly non-human sort of creatures 
And I think that he probably does the best job in illustrating the sort of otherworldliness and alienness of the Lovecraft mythos and the, the beings that populate it. And he does more to make a compelling argument about why you should care than I think we probably do on this podcast. I, and like I said, it's super fucking short. It's a quick read, but it's great stuff. He really cuts through a lot of the bullshit and he even acknowledges that just going by Lovecraft's work, there's such a bare bones as far as systems that you have the opportunity to create a system and a way of working with these things that's deeply personal and unique. And that's not a bad thing. In fact, I, I think even an approach of, say, hypothetically, you read the Simon Necronomicon and you read Alizif and then you get the, the Pseudonomicon, you, you'd probably be in a great standing to uh, get a, you know, a, a deep one in your sink or a Shogoth to help you with your laundry. Or, you know, God forbid, you uh, summon Narhalithotep and he leads you down the, the paths of madness. <laughs> I think the the practices and ideas he lays out in this book are as thought provoking as they are well put together, and I I think it's it's honestly one of the better explorations of the subject. And it, I guess, it's important that it's coming from somebody who is a chaos magician rather than someone who is coming from the stuffy robe tradition, I suppose, because then there's the there's that urge to try to make it fit, make it historical, add the elements of the Western tradition in the way that grimoires were laid out. Instead, he's much more like, here's what this thing is about. This is what Cthul these this is what Cthulhu is about. And you should understand that. And then you should make your rituals to work around it. That's great. Um I think we have a couple other random Necronomicon ideas to throw out here just because I think it's uh, some of them are kind of cute. Obviously, um, as almost as early as possible, people started coming up with like fake listings of the Necronomicon for sale and stuff. Apparently, the Vatican regularly gets requests for the Necronomicon because people think that it's in the, uh, the Vatican library. Well, where else would it be? I mean, yeah, if anyone's going to have it, it's probably the Vatican Library. Um, a fictional version of it that was written in a complete fake language that was indecipherable was published in 1973. That's great. Love that. Um, not to um, rain on your parade about all as if, but um, that was apparently written by occultist Robert Turner. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I guess all that might be a bunch of load of hokum too, but it's a lot better of a, a hokum than uh, the Simon Necronomicon. Oh yeah, well, and that was the other thing is that I was I'm genuinely curious because Colin Wilson, one of his flaws, I suppose, is that I feel like he's he's very much taken in by a lot of like paranormal phenomenon. He's written books about like poltergeists and stuff. Well, yeah, and he wrote on Crowley, too, at various points. Yeah, yeah. But I, I think that I don't know if he's lying, and I don't know if it was a case of, like, because imagine reading that intro 
and then going into that grimoire and being like, oh shit, this might actually be real. <laughs> you know, I think it, 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 cause it's like, and, and I guess the problem is, is that almost the, the mixing of the, the truth with the lie, you create a far more compelling lie rather than, uh, some guy named Simon showed up with a book, right? Let's see. In 2004, occultist Donald Tyson published his own version of the Necronomicon. I don't like Donald Tyson. No. I just don't. Not a big fan either. At least he stated fairly clearly that this is fake. Um, there was also one by George Eodanet, you know, George Eodanus. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. It's Greek. It was written in 2008, and it's called Necronomicon, A Study of the Forbidden Magic of Lovecraft and the Great Mystery of Stargate. It's uh, published entirely in Greek. Modern Greek or like Coptic? Uh, modern Greek. Finally, there was a uh, Necronomicon plush book published. And by published, I mean created. It's a pillow. Someone made a pillow that's just an Necronomicon. Well, and then I, I suppose like the Evil Dead. Ah, yes, the Evil Dead. The Necronomicon Ex Immortus. Yep, yep. Book of the Dead. So if you want to summon a deadite. I'm so, and I know for a fact there's like production copies of like that book, but it's not really a book. It's like a bunch of indecipherable language and kooky art. Yeah, and it's got a face on it because it's like made out of human skin. Ooh. Ooh, bound in human flesh, written wow. in human blood, which is very inconvenient. That shit wouldn't hold up at all, would it? No, I, I'm, I don't know how long blood lasts on paper, but I don't think it lasts long enough. Oh, well, to round out the end of the episode, I guess then, I suppose you want to talk about any experience you've had doing Lovecraft magic? Um... No, <laughs> I'm trying to think of it. Well, it's, uh, the problem is right. Like I can tell you about my experiences with the Simon Necronomicon because I did stuff with it when you gave me the book. But it's nothing shocking. It's well, it's the type of shit that you'd expect from doing Sumerian reconstruction magic, not spooky tentacles, right? You know. Um, I don't know. I'm really trying to think of like anything because it's like. I think one of the big benefits of this sort of thing is if this sort of stuff could actually scare the bejesus out of you, you could get a very emotional response from it, and that could probably make good magic. But I think most of us, me, like me in particular, I'm, just, I'm not scared by Lovecraft. I'm fascinated, you know? Right. I want to understand it. For me, it goes back to the problem of pop magic in general for me. It's hard to take it seriously. Yeah, it's hard to... You can get stuff if you work hard enough at it, but it's, I get results a lot easier from doing stuff that I think has some sort of validity to it. I th well, you know, I can say that I had a thing happen with where I wasn't doing Lovecraft magic, but I was doing uh, some, you know, uh, wholesale manufactured chaos magic sort of stuff. And it involved time. And of course, at the end, like as I was leading up from this working, I had uh, just Yogg showed up, you know, as the as the the gate 
and the and the key and the uh, the key and the gate and the keeper of the gate where he showed up because like I, and it's and I was like what what the like in the the experience of it I was like well what like what the fuck are you doing here and it's like well like who else is going to be here outside of time waiting on you <laughs> you know that's funny because um the two experiences with Lovecraft magic that I have one of them involves Yogg-Sothoth as well and I won't go into the specifics of it but. I just um read the 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 two silver key stories. Mm-hmm. And after doing a working, I was you know, I just I'd finished up, I'd done all my stuff, and I was driving afterwards. And I just remember pulling up to a stoplight and having a sudden very intense experience of the interconnectedness and singular identity of all things. And it, you know, revealed itself as Yogg-Sothoth. Yeah, all, all things are yogg Yeah, and I remember out loud saying that all things are Yogg-Sothoth. Mm, mm. And the other one I had is inspired by the other Wilson. <laughs> because if anyone here has read any of the Illuminatus books, you'll know that Lovecraft features very prominently in them as well but there's a particular portion about uh, Adam Weishaupt smoking weed and uh, thinking about a, a, a squink. And he talks about seeing Shogoths in uh, the Necronomicon on a specific page and everything. And I was doing some magic, getting very heavily into uh, the good old cannabis magic. And uh, I remember seeing a Shogoth in a state of very, very, very deep meditation and work while I was just stoned as shit. (laughs) And it was just one of those things like it's this horrific, terrifying image of all sorts of like, what the fuck? And then I saw a Shogoth in it. I'm like, oh, God, that's a Shogoth. It's all real. (laughs) Um, actually, okay. I, I can think of, uh, I can think of probably two more and it's like, these are nothing fascinating or like super great, but I think one of the things is that there was a, I did have an experience of Azathoth as Again, and this is kind of what I was talking about with Lovecraft's meta these creatures as metaphor, but it was it was like a, a sort of inner work Jungian type experience where Azathoth was sort of my stand-in for the great the the fundamental uncaring clockwork physical universe that just kept churning and churning and churning. And it was the because it's this massive, inscrutable Un, untouchable sort of thing and it's like it doesn't matter everywhere you look it's Azathoth and I know he's almost the I guess in a way if Yogg-Sothoth is the guy telling Randolph Carter like hey good job I'm, uh, way to go you have my respect because you've realized the past present and future and all is Yogg-Sothoth you know there's the he's the the face at the end of like yeah I'm terrifying but I'm also you Azathoth is is almost the negative of like everywhere you look, it's Azathoth, and it's just awful. 
It's just awful. You can't, there's no, it's, it's every, and it's because the answer is everything is as a thought except you, except you're probably also as a thought and you hate it. And you're going to be eaten by as a thought. You're going to, yeah, you're, you're just going to be chewed up and spit out. Or as soon as as a thought wakes from his dream, you're going to puff away in a, a bit of smoke. It's the, he's the, the, the great darkness of everything. And it's like, yeah, every, it's, it's all going to end probably very badly as well. You know, that sort of thing. So I did have that experience once. And then I think this was from Bertio where he talked about the, uh, sort of the, the sort of amphibious motifs of Lovecraft of the notion of like the, everything is not everything, but most of these underwater sort of entities. And he, he looked at them as like sort of these spirits, you know, these, these amphibious spirits. And I was traveling and it was real. I was traveling by myself and it was a very, it was a real long journey, but I was, I just kept going by rivers and stuff. Right. And having that sort of thought in my mind, it was like, I, I did have uh, a little bit of an inkling of sort of that presence of that idea of like, yeah, these are, it's like, this is probably these, these, those critters are out. Then it's that it touches into that sort of primal fear center in the, in the human brain of like the, the notion of like, damn, they're them's fish people out there. And it's like these, that one isn't necessarily like a magic thing. And the other one is not magic and the idea of like doing stuff to get things, but they're, uh, you know, experiential sort of things. Right, mysticism in metaphysics. The other thing, I, I do really vibe with Kenneth Grant's take on Lovecraft because I remember at one point Shubnagorath made me have a better understanding of Pan in relation to Babylon in the Thelemic system as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the goat with a thousand young. Right, and just in the way that I always say these things, it's like I don't necessarily want to say that Lovecraft had the the cosmic consciousness given him the the secrets that Crowley had as well, but just in the way that we make phenomena intelligible, drink again. It was something that helped me make that sort of connection and understand what I was getting at with these other practices I was doing. Oh, I saw another one where it was uh, an equating of Baphomet with uh, Shubnigaroth. That's another interesting one of like the sort of nature. I don't want to say nature God, but sort of almost like the, the morphogenic God, I guess. Oh, right, yeah. Yeah, that the sort of creature that is the all-encompassing biology, you know? Mm-hmm. The goat with a thousand young. Yep, yep. Well, and I think that's... I Maybe that is part of the thing, is that, like, maybe Kenneth Grant is right in the idea that Lovecraft might be good for, like, big-picture stuff, if that makes sense. Well, you don't get much of a bigger picture than fucking Yogg-Sothoth and Azathoth. And yeah, and Cosmic the- Horror. Amanitizing the eschaton in where you will burn in white hot ecstasy. And there's probably like some practical applications of like, hey, I made a show goth and I sent him out to do, do stuff, or I, or I made a deal, or, you know, I, I pulled a, I pulled an Innsmouth and I made a, made a pact with some fish people or something, but yeah, I'm sure there's something. Yeah. But you'll only know if you try it. Yep. So, dear listeners, that is our um, 
declaration for you. If you haven't tried some uh, wacky Lovecraft magic yet, go ahead and try it. Because even if you feel like it's hokey and it's not real, tons of things aren't real. And that hasn't stopped you from believing in them. And you know, you never know. Maybe, uh, maybe you will fuck around and find out. Maybe. Or maybe you'll go completely fucking insane and have to take a bunch of opium just to deal with the visions and then write a suicide note. The window. The window. And with that, that's the end of the Lovecraft special. Was it everything you hoped it would be? Who, me personally? Yeah. No, I I was hoping, like, we'd go stark raving mad. Yeah, I thought it would end with us just chanting... um, Cthulhu Fatagan, Cthulhu Fatagan, Cthulhu Fatagan, Cthulhu Fatagan, Cthulhu Fatagan. Should we just end the episode with us going Cthulhu Fatagan, Cthulhu Fatagan, Cthulhu? Ah, uh, maybe. I guess we have to do the admin first, don't we? Oh yeah. Well, everyone, this has been Chaos Magic News, the only podcast with the Insmith look. As <laughs> always, if you do find a copy of the Narcotic Manuscripts, please return it to Miskatonic University at Providence, Rhode Island. <laughs> you can find us at chaosmagicnews.com where we'll have articles, links to the pod, interviews, pretty much anything you could ever possibly want from us. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Chaos Magic News. And other than that, well, Randolph, would you like the last word? Cthulhu Fatagan, 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 Lefty, loosey, righty, tight. That doesn't help when you're trying to figure out headphones. Has nothing right. to do with headphones. It, it doesn't, but that's fine. <laughs>